0: What's on Mix 93.8? Mix 93.8, legendary radio, as we do each and every Monday night at this time. It is time for What's Involved. And I know I say this every week, but my guest tonight, I've been so looking forward to having a chat to again. Uh, so it's a very warm What's Involved welcome to Steph Amiel. And how are you, Steph?
1: I'm good, thank you, David. And this is indeed a privilege.
0: Well, it's, m- it's my privilege, I must tell you, because, um, and again, this is one of those we- we've spoken before. and. Yes. For me, it was like just yesterday, but it was a good couple of years ago. And obviously, Steph has been busy in that time. So before we get into what the main topic of tonight's conversation is, and it's Afro-optimism. I love that. When we talked mm. about it, I was like, we need some of that. But tell us a little bit about Steph. I mean, you are known, at least amongst, amongst the people that are in the know, as the queen of EQ, particularly in South Africa. Um, and, but how did you get there? What was your journey? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: I started off, I was going to become, in the 1980s, I was starting to become a shrink. And then I was in my own therapy, as one has to be if you're going to be a shrink. And my shrink said to me, no, I don't think so. You're far too ambitious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I would be so good at this. And I'd been doing lots of volunteer counseling, etc. And then was quite lost in terms of what I was going to do. So the mind power guru, John Kehoe, came here in the early Ooh, 90s. Yes. And he ran those mass seminars and charged a fortune at the time. I think it was about 1,300 rand, which was a lot of money in the 1990s. And we just... Come through the worst recession. It was the announcements I don't think had been made yet. We were still in the doldrums of, of that really depressed time at the end of apartheid and i watched him run these seminars and thought well obviously there's a need for training and then myself went into training particularly because of our transition which was all happening then at the time so i was doing a lot of personal growth training based on psychology which has always been my my subject and my my field of, of great passion and personal development and then in the 19 it was 1996 no 1995 I was in one of the bookstores and I saw a book titled Emotional Intelligence, and I just thought that answers so many questions because I knew all of the mind power stuff was playing very heavily on the what we thought was the mind then, which we now, is, now know is actually not true. None of that mind power stuff is true. The law of attraction and all of that is just nonsense. <laughs> and, and what? Uh, apologies. That, uh, I see your reaction. People are it sitting has gasping. Been, it has been totally disproven. Mm-hmm. And so it all sounds nice because it's magical thinking, but it's not. it doesn't have any basis in science whatsoever. Now, I knew at the time that the NLPs and the mind powers and all of the things that were very popular at the time, neurolinguistic programming being NLP, all of that was actually had completely disregarded or mostly disregarded the emotions. And obviously my background in science... Psychology was telling me that your emotions will override everything else if you're in a bad mood to try and talk yourself out of it It's almost impossible if something's really getting you down So I knew that the emotions were an important part of had already been working with that But the book I picked up was Daniel Goleman's first book and I just saw the title and bought it. And then it took a while to read because it was written for academic psychologists or psychology students. The, the thought with emotional intelligence was it was just going to be another branch of psychology, academic psychology. Nobody, including the Daniel Golemans and, and Peter Salaves and all of the original inventors of the term or those who promoted it, ever expected it to go the way that it has gone. But it was something that really worked for what I had been thinking and so i started to develop my own training around it Mm -hmm. and uh, people who knew the book knew that it was very academic and not very practical it was his first book it was an academic book as i've mentioned and then said to me well why don't you then write a book because there's nothing practical around and that was at the end of the 90s where there was no google there was no we had a search engine i remember because my husband is in computers it was called copernicus and you literally would put in the term emotional intelligence and you'd go and make some tea and take some time and come back five minutes later and you got three results and you're going wow it searched the whole world <laughs> <And> <laughs> it has came found out. a time magazine article on emotional intelligence and this was remarkable at the time but it was before all of the technology that we have today that supposedly or does certainly make our lives a lot easier so what has happened since is the whole of neuroscience has exploded in within the within in the, this new millennium. And because of technology and the, the MRIs and fMRIs being able to have a peek into the brain, we can now start to see what the brain is doing. And this has changed the whole of behavioral psychology. It's changed the way we see ourselves. It's changed the way we think about ourselves. And that makes this field really exciting. So the first book I wrote was in 90 it was launched in 1999 or published in 1999. And then I republished published the same book but it is a totally different book because of neuroscience in 2015 and that book I have called personal intelligence because it's a lot more than emotional intelligence on its own
0: and and that to me is is absolutely amazing because you mentioned NLP now I was yes. I was initially a very very big fan of NLP and then I became despondent because I was like yeah I can see how it works, but mm. there's no soul. There's mm. a, and, and subsequently, I'm, I'm sure you've come across this as well, there has been this change to more neuro-linguistic psychology now because obviously this kind of stuff is coming in. Yes. And, and the emotions play a massive, massive role. Massive
1: role. What science now knows about our emotions is that our emotions literally run the traffic, the chemical traffic between our thinking brain and our physical body and though that chemical traffic is neurochemicals in our body so it's the same as neurochemicals in our brain but we call them hormones when they run the traffic in our body now when we're feeling great and we're feeling in a state of flow it's like you're in a fantastic car a really high performance car and you're on a great road a a brilliant highway where there's no other traffic Mm. and that sense of flow is what we call happiness and so we label these things Which really have to do with our well-being And so when we are happy It's a message A physical message about our well-being It's saying everything in our system is running fine yeah. As soon as something happens And we get angry or we get upset Or the traffic starts to flow differently Because the hormones release differently So the, the commonly uh, known stress hormone is cortisol And cortisol literally literally stops us from thinking straight, which is why if you're highly stressed, it's hard to think of people's names or to remember what did we do at that meeting yesterday. It mm-hmm. affects our short-term memory. So all of this is, is literally about our well-being as human beings, and our emotions are the things that speak to us about our well-being. So if we're off whack, we really need to do something about that and get back to being. The default state of human beings is to be happy once again, because that's where where we find our energy and if we have energy some people talk about emotions energy in motion mm. or some scientists talk about motivation as emotion evoking motion and when do we feel motivated? When we feel good. When we feel demotivated, we actually have no energy at all and we kind of drag ourselves through life.
0: And this is also where, where, where somebody would come up to you and go, oh, some people just push my buttons. And very often yes. it'll happen. There's certain things where somebody might speak to you in a certain tone, a certain way, and before you know it, you're angry. You're yes. in a bad mood. Yes. And that's now, just the chemicals are going, okay,
1: this we, we're associating them. Bang, I'm... Am I, am I on exactly the right track? That. You're on the right track. The thing that we need to know, though, is it's not just a personality clash, as it were. They've, we've all got what I call when I'm training. I talk about good buttons and bad buttons. And we've all got good buttons. If you say to me, you know, I love your work and you're fantastic and amazing. And and, yeah. and I say to you, and, and then we'll have, you know, this great party of, of acknowledging one another. And those are our good buttons. Somebody may come along and I, I almost look at the 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 bad buttons as a rawness an open wound, and somebody comes along and all of these are connected to your history the bad buttons. So there's a yeah. big filing cabinet, let's say, of negative experiences, and these connect to raw nerves, which I would call your bad buttons. And so all somebody needs to do is come along and they just brush up against. And, and we're, we react. There we go. And but it's all to do with our history, and we need to take responsibility for our bad buttons, because when we when we take responsibility for our bad buttons, then we can heal them, and we can go. Okay, I react when people do this. I tend to have an angry reaction. So lots of people would have an angry reaction when they're not seen or not heard, because that's lots of people grow up that's, not being seen that or. Was <laughs> my <laughs> biggest
0: one for so. so Long. When I felt I wasn't being heard, then that little boy would come out and stamp his feet, feet. and have a tantrum.
1: And so he went on to radio. Yes. To be heard. Yes. <laughs> and, and <laughs> you not I'm going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and I became a speaker for exactly the same reason. <laughs> so it's something that lots of people will react to, but these are our raw buttons. And when we can heal those buttons, other people can come along and they can do exactly the same thing. And but the button is no longer there. It's re- it will re- always remain as a scar. Yes. But it will no longer. It will no. You will no longer. You'll react similarly, but you won't feel hurt. Inside. It won't trigger
0: that exact yeah. that raw emotion.
1: So feeling hurt inside is really a reminder that we've got more lessons to learn from the experiences that have happened to us. Now in my books, I have an emotional dictionary that decodes the meaning of emotion because all of our emotions. It's a language that we need to learn. And when we learn the meaning of our emotions, we can then start decoding and working with them and unpacking that big filing cabinet and going, okay, well, it's sore still. What more have I got to learn about me? Not, I wish I'd never been in that circumstance. That's not learning. But lots of people, when you take them through these processes, like I would do in coaching, for example, and you take them through and you show them That because they managed that situation, they've now emerged a lot stronger than they actually thought they were before this thing happened to them. So life is about lots and lots and lots and lots of learning. And when we still feel emotionally hurt, it's because we've still got more to learn about those instances.
0: Which is what is so interesting about the main topic of our discussion tonight. Because we were talking about this and I said, Steph, what are are we going to talk about tonight? And you went Afro optimism, and I thought yes. <laughs> a bit of a contradiction in terms. But anyway, we are going to be discussing Afro optimism. My special guest in studio is Steph Mieland. David Watts on Mix ninety three point eight. What's involved on this Monday night? Uh, Lance just wanted to know who's on Mix FM right now. Well, the show is called What's Involved? And uh, my guest in studio is Steph Fermiela, And I'd like to i like to call Steph the queen of EQ in South Africa. Um, and we'll tell you all about where you can get hold of Steph. Uh, what we've been talking about is your journey so far. We've been talking about EQ. So how on earth did we go from EQ <laughs> to this contradiction in terms called afro Optimism. What is this about? (laughs) Speak to me.
1: I have a great interest in the world and in seeing, making things transparent. And the one thing that, uh, that. Is, or, or there are things that are happening in Africa that we are very unaware of. So part of the, the neuroscience journey is learning to change our narratives, it's learning to look at the world differently, and it's learning to be more flexible in our beliefs and opinions about things because everything is changing so rapidly. So for me, it's, it was really the start of this journey of looking at Afro-optimism was about change and change management, et cetera, et cetera. And then I started to just put things together that were happening that I think are going to fundamentally shift where Africa is right now and already it's happening. And one of those things is what's known as the X Prize for Literacy. Now, the X Prize for Literacy is, is a $10 million prize that is put wow. out by people, a consortium of people, our Elon, as we like to call him. We like to own Elon Musk. Well, we have to. I mean, obviously. <laughs> he, he doesn't <laughs> like to own us, but we like to <laughs> own him, Elon Musk. Peter Diamandis is a consortium of futurists that put out a, a, a competition launched about two or three years ago. In terms of anybody or any group of people that could actually develop technology for African or, or poor children, rural children around the world, starting in Africa, for children to teach themselves to read using tablets. Now, the tablets are being su- are being supplied by Google. The uh, energy oh. will be provided by, we're washing in sunshine, so it'll be a, uh, by solar energy. And the idea is that when kids get hold of these tablets, they will play games or do whatever they're going to do. But the the... The whole point is to see if we can make a continent literate within a few years. Now, that prize is the is being tested currently in Tanzania. The five finalists, are the, their offerings are being tested currently. And the prize will be awarded in February. So, if you haven't entered yet, you're, you're too late to do so. But what will happen when this rollout starts is it's not only going to be children because – all people in Africa are hungry for information. Now, we're already seeing, with just little bits of information feeding through to people, we're seeing an amazing mushrooming of creativity on this continent. I've given up completely on America. Any group of people that could vote Donald Trump in as their saviour, I'm done, I'm finished. And because that's mm. taking the world backwards, I think that... Europe is also too comfortable. We don't innovate when we're comfortable. So I really do believe that the next place of innovation will be Africa and potentially India, because for the same reason, once the, the, the rollout has happened here in terms of literacy, it will go to the subcontinent of India as well. Now, you've got a whole lot of people who have some very urgent needs that they are desperate to solve, and Africans are going to solve their own problems. They don't need technology from outside. Oh,
0: yes. I, I so agree agree with you on and that.
1: So all Africans need is information. Now, when... Everybody in Africa, almost one billion people are literate and can read. They also have devices which give people access to the world's repository of information. Now, that's what education has tried to do. Education has tried to make us remember that world's repository of information, which we don't need to do any longer because we have now, we've got devices, etc., that will do it for us. So, I see within five to ten years' time that this, if this technology works, if People, if it's possible to teach people to be literate, if this technology works, within 10 years' time, we're going to see a very different continent. There are also moves afoot that are the, the and and again, it's going to rub up against a whole lot of people's bigotry about Chinese industrialization. Everyone going, oh, the Chinese always bring in their own, and and they don't actually empower anybody. The Chinese anybody, are taking and, over, yeah, and they're taking over, etc. The Chinese have always been traders; they've never been imperialists. I think what we're afraid of is that the Chinese will do what the Europeans have done, and the Europeans, literally the colonialists, etc., came in, put in the infrastructure necessary to take out the goods that they have stolen from Africa, all of the wealth, etc. Now, the Chinese are not doing that. There is a book um, called The Next Factory of Africa. And in that book, it's a, a woman who is a Chinese... Uh, person who is an American national who lives in Africa and does research in Africa. And she's researched Chinese companies. And she says that the Chinese companies that she's researched, not in necessarily in South Africa, but all over Africa, yeah. 94% of the employment is actually local. Now, what is estimated that every time industrialization happens, you've got it jumped firstly from the U.K., to Germany, funnily enough, and, and I mean, it's such a joke that Germany, in the, the days of early industrialization, looked with great admiration Great admiration to British productivity, which today is completely the other way around, of course. But then it went, and obviously we know from from our own lifetimes in the 90s, it ended up in in the Far East, etc. And from uh, the 80s, Japan, then it went to Taiwan, and then it jumped to China. Now, Chinese people who are here say that they are in Africa because they like Africa, because it reminds them of the China they grew up in, totally Un- unindustrialized industrialized. And then they moved to open factories now in Africa, and they're here because their own labor is too expensive. so they're not bringing their own labor along. That is why they are in Africa. Now everybody will go, "Oh well the same environmental problems." and yes, all of those things are probable. They but are with, here
0: to exploit us, etc, etc etc.
1: Within 10 to 15 years it's estimated that if the, through the Chinese industrialization of Africa Chinese factories employing African people, that in 10 to 15 years, if we can uplift just half the number of people who've been uplifted through Chinese industrialization in China, we will solve the problem of poverty in Africa is well, let's, what's
0: estimated. Let's be honest. I mean, you know, Western aid into Africa. Yes, has been hopeless. Has, has not really done it's anything. It's, it's lined pockets of the few. But I mean, yes. for the masses, um, it hasn't. So... Do you reckon yes. this is a possibility? So this
1: is a, it's, it's, it's already happening. And it's, so it's, it's not about to happen. It is already happening and it is in process. And what happens around these big Chinese factories, there are, for example, she talks about denim factories in Lesotho. And there's a mushrooming of industries that are started by local people, cut, make, and trim (CMT) industries that are then started by local people. So, because the demands of these Chinese factories are so huge, they can't be solved all in one factory. So, you're starting to see factories are mushrooming around these big Chinese installations in order to feed that machine. To feed that machine, but what is happening? It's putting the money into the pockets of Africans, and it's also also putting the know-how. There's absolutely no way we will be able to educate the number of people, same as China, there's no way we'll be able to educate the number of forgotten adults in Africa, but this way they can learn to be manufacturers, we can learn then to beneficiate the great wealth of Africa, which still exists. It it hasn't, a lot has been stolen indeed, but there's a great wealth that still exists in Africa. People talk about in the Congo, the, the wealth that is under the ground in the Congo is just phenomenal. If we can, as African people, take this and beneficiate, instead of sending our our raw materials out and then buying expensive product back in, which was the colonial model, Mm. and it's a disastrous model for Africa.
0: Do you think because of our history in Africa, that history of exploitation, number one, there is a fear that the Chinese are going to do the same thing, but do you not think perhaps... Because of those lessons learned, um, Africans are going to be even more vigilant about that and they're going to go, hang on.
1: I think what has changed everything is tech. So, lots of youngsters all the way throughout Africa. There's a new book written, unfortunately, I came across it recently, but it's in French. It's not translated yet. And about the influence of tech startups in Africa, which is obviously younger people. Now, younger people are fed up with the militaristic model. They're fed up with the autocratic power model. In the same way as younger people in Europe were fed up with that, and then we saw a move to democracy after the Second World War. The same process is happening in Africa but it's turbo boosted because of tech and access to tech. So you've got a whole lot of tech startups. This French person who's written this book, a young person who's written this book about tech in Africa, he came here to do research and he said he's never left. And he said that one of the big tech areas of enormous tech development is Ghana and it's leading the way now this is fantastic this is not stuff that we are coming across and this is not stuff that we are hearing because we are still hearing the same old narrative about Africa and which, which is not what is happening on the ground at all so one has to search and one has to dig and one has to find out to be able to change our own narrative because this continent is where the next creative explosion is going to come from
0: you know what was amazing for me is when I was based in in Nelspruit, living in Nelspruit, we used to we used to train tour guides and field guides, and we were approached by um, the Department of Tourism, and they said, "Here is X amount of money, go ye forth and train tour guides for this influx of tourism." So yes. we dutifully went off, and we ended up <laughs> literally in the, in the corner where the Samora Michelle Monument is uh, yep. between Mozambique and and uh, and uh, Mpumalanga, and it was deep, deep, rural Mpumalanga. Yes. And they now expected us to go out and train tour guards, but there was no plan. So we trained them and we said, okay, here they are. Now what? Yes. However, what amazed me is that these people were, to all intents and purposes, illiterate. Yet almost every single one of them either had a cell phone yep. or had access to a cell phone. And the Yeah, and the uptake on that kind of technology has been absolutely amazing.
1: That is what is going to change Africa because instead of having to go to colleges or universities or sign up for UNISA or remote learning most learning will happen via tech devices so most learning is going to happen on your cell phone so instead of having to get a university degree if you want to study something you just sign up for a course on your cell phone now obviously today it's important that people can read because it is all written but with the influx of smartphones that are cheaper and more affordable and that technology is happening all the time you can get an education by watching videos so you don't need to read any longer and Most youngsters are getting an education in terms of tech via watching videos rather than reading anything.
0: You look at the amount of searches for things done on YouTube at the moment. I was actually with an organization today, um, and it was all about the Credit Act. And they are looking to implement this training because the act says it has to be done. And instead of doing that, oh, yes, here we go. Here's the book you learn. Yes. We've been asked to do videos, et cetera, et cetera. And it's Tech in that courses. gamification yep. area. Absolutely. It's in this and it's all icons and it's point and click. Obviously, it's going to be in the various languages. And we were like, okay, you know, this, this we can do because this is the space that we play in at the moment. But what I've noticed as well with a lot of people is – the need to have this formal piece of paper from a formalized yes. learning institution. Yes. The guys, and particularly millennials, those kind of things, they're going, yeah, okay, but you know, I can learn this and I can do it. Why do I have to waste it's five or six years of my time? Are we going <laughs> in this
1: direction? We're going in the direction where... Pieces of paper won't matter any longer because, as soon as you've got a piece of paper, that information is well outdated, even if your degree was right up to date when you started it. Mm. Most degrees, I have degrees in psychology. I was learning about what Freud said, and he was 100 years before. Now, you know, you may want to know what the people who founded the field that you're interested in if that is your area of interest. But it's not necessarily going to benefit us in applying what we know. Our generation of baby boomers and just after etc., degrees were really important because that's what separated us. There were so many of us that we needed some form of separation and that is what separated supposedly the wheat from the chaff, as it were. Mm -hmm. And today that's not the case because nobody's really interested in how many degrees you have because anybody who can read can read Read books and get degrees. Mm. Uh, people are only interested in what can you do or produce. Now, when it comes to technology, yeah. our generation can risk falling behind completely if we don't keep up to date with what is happening. And it Uh, is.
0: And that's a monster thing. I mean, progress happens so
1: quickly these days. And it's it's not difficult. We just need to be a lot more flexible, which is is why with the advent of AI and all of that and and the things that we're talking about, it's not impossible that we will produce the AI robots in Africa for the rest of the world. Well,
0: (laughs) I want to talk... AI. Yes. And I want to talk where women fit into this whole yes. thing. Because, I mean, Africa's got this big thing and there's this, this, this big looming shadow of inequality. So when we come back, let's talk about that. David Watts on Mix 93.8. Legendary Radio. What's involved? It is chatting to Steph Vermeulen. And we are chatting about Afro-optimism, which is so good because we, we need some good news. So we've talked about this. We've talked about evolution. We've talked about AI a little bit. Um, so I want to, I want to dig into that. Uh, you know, there's, there's this concept you mentioned off air briefly about the, the concept of hyperhuman, but where do we stand in Africa in terms of women and empowerment and stuff like that? Cause I've been of the opinion and I've often been ridiculed for this is that women is where it's at specifically in Africa.
1: You're correct. Oh,
0: <laughs> thank you. I have a woman who agrees with me.
1: So make a note for once. <laughs> Tell me about that. Uh, The interesting thing about women in Africa is, or Africa in general, is Africa in general is a continent of mental toughness because everybody has had to be who lives on this continent to survive. And particularly the women – And if we look at what is happening in the future, there is no place for these stupid gender roles that really are a very modern invention in our world and probably as modern as about possibly 50, 60, maybe 100 years where we have this great gender divide. Mm -hmm. So if all human beings are just themselves in their humanness, there's no continuum of femininity as it were in a separate one for masculinity. There are women who show tendencies or strength that would be called that they are masculinized men or high testosterone females and you have men who would be high let's say on the, the feminine scale of things now where's this great divide that it's all on one continuum for heaven's sake if yeah. you look at what women do in Africa that women are the backbone women are the strength women are the doers and, and a lot of the time the nurturers they, they, are the doers yeah. and they also are are running most of the the small holding farms in this country are run and managed by women alone. And so the big farmers in this country are actually women, but that's in South Africa and probably for much of the continent. Now, you've got women who really do want more. Once they have the tech to be able to provide more, not only can they actually start to improve the farming methods so it doesn't require them to have to go and get wood, for example, every day. There was a comparison done in terms of energy. And when we have different forms of energy, Energy, which we really should have across the the continent we need the solar solar powered energy and the contrast between a unit of energy in the uk and a unit of energy the equivalent in terms of paraffin or wood in africa it was something like that it costs african women like eight dollars to a, a, a sort of 20 cents for people to buy energy in the in the UK. Now once wow. we then can sort out the energy problem we will start to see the strength that of African women coming through. And because African women have had to be strong they're not concerned in rural Africa about whether their fingernails are chipped or you know whether they, they've got a few wrinkles and they need some botox at all. They've got to survive. And because they've got to be real and they've got to survive. So the backbone of Africa is women and women raise children and women raise children all over so so much so that the world today is considered a matriarchal society because most people will be raised at some point by a single mother, and there's lots of other conditions that make us matriarchal societies as opposed to patriarchal societies. But we're straddling the, the, the nonsense of the patriarchy, which is saying that men are superior in what way? That we all have something to offer, and we all have something to bring, every single one of us as individuals, including somebody from deep rural Africa who may not have an education, has lots to bring to the equation. So everybody has value. And what we're looking at in terms of new economies that is the the Italian... Um, he's he's he is the professor of economics at the University of Pretoria, has an American accent, so we're very global at the moment, <laughs> who's written a book called The Well-Being Economy. And he's really talking about what we do so well in Africa is the human face of economics. So instead of having this ridiculous notion of growth which can't continue and is unsustainable has got us into the mess that we're in, he's talking about putting care at the center of our economies. Now, Now, Africa is strongly poised, so is the subcontinent of India, to have care at the center of our economies. Now, if we're looking at AI and what it's going to bring, AI can't do the jobs that human beings can do in terms of our humanness. So we really are starting to fulfill what Steve Biko said he said that America and Europe have, or the Western world has brought a militaristic and industrial look to the world. What Africa will ultimately do is give us a human face. And this professor, he's written a book called The Wellbeing Economy, is talking exactly about what we know on the continent of Africa is various versions of Ubuntu now this is my point that i was going to make is is
0: we've got this this is something yes. that is built Inherent. into us the spirit of ubuntu and then everybody else comes with their preconceived ideas and notions and screws it up yes and i think it's because we've we never
1: westerners a- come with our yeah. ideas and
0: screw it and, up and, and <laughs> we as, as africans have never had that kind of pride in ourselves and in our abilities to
1: stand up and go people, hang on people did it was badly screwed around by the colonial era because the colonialists to justify their pillage had to pretend that Africa was an empty continent the African history is deeply rich that places like Timbuktu in the middle in the middle ages were five times the size of London had a tw- 120,000 inhabitants mm. 25,000 scholars at universities and, and way outstripped Europe The what we know to be the Zimbabwe ruins for example was the, the empire of the, mon- or the monument top an empire which mined gold from eleven hundreds all the way through southern Africa. So we come along and we go, Well, you know, the white person found gold in Pilgrim's rest or whatever in the eighteen hundreds it is just nonsense. The actual history so is different. The, the real history we need to regain African pride in our continent by actually teaching people the real history of what happened here. There was a ruler in, in West Africa called Mansa uh, Mansa Musa was his title as as, a, as the ruler and he's considered to be wealthier if you take the, the amount of gold that he had and had been mined in his empire, if you took that and converted it to today's money, he would be far wealthier than the Bill Gates and all the people that we consider to be billionaires today. So Africa has a very deep history that has been raped along with the continent in terms of colonial era etc. to justify white superiority. So racism, sexism has no place whatsoever in our new world and I do believe that Africa is going to show the way forward in terms of that.
0: I, th- I think I think we do, and I firmly believe that. So, Steph, we're almost out of time again. Um, <laughs> where to from here? What would you say we need in Africa to make these dreams? become a reality
1: they already happening so we just need to actually have a look at what can each of us contribute so what can we do to help education and I'm not talking about the education systems if you see a need and you can develop a product that could teach people to do practical things using technology then do it so all of us need to con- contribute and all of us also need to hear a lot more from people who are on this continent rather than than tell people what they need to do, which is obviously the Western and the white way, which is what we've always done. So we need to hear people and we need to facilitate what it is that people need. If people need literacy, then we can facilitate that. If people need to have uh, an understanding of our history, we can through technology facilitate that. But we certainly as white people and Western people need to do a lot more listening. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Stefan Millen,
0: Mielin, uh, people can get hold of you at eqsa.co.za. Correct. Uh, your book is available, bookshops, you can get it on Amazon in Kindle. Um, can you get yes. it
1: through eqsa as well? Um, if people want to, if they're having difficulty getting it, they can uh, contact me through eqsa. But it is available on Kindle, on Amazon, and the book is called Personal Intelligence, Future Fit Now. Okay,
0: so well worth it, but also if people want to get hold of you because yes. I think this is the kind of thing that, and I'm, I'm hoping that corporates would jump on this and go, okay, we do have this emotional responsibility rather than this CSI thing that everybody throws around all the time. Yes. Uh, you do speak on that.
1: I speak on this. I speak on personal intelligence. I speak on the future. I speak on all of the things that we've been talking about, including how do we start changing people's minds t- by changing their narrative of themselves, of Africa, of what we see, because there'll be a whole lot of people who've been reacting to what we're saying, but who will be going at a bunkum, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, we're not going to be popular with, with, with some people. Other people are going to buy into it. Um, Steph, you have written this whole uh, article on uh, on the whole concept of, um, what do we call it, Afro-optimism. Yeah. Steph, <laughs> thank you so much. As always, been an absolute, pop- i l-
1: loved it. It's been great. And thank you. I have too. It was a great
0: opportunity <laughs> there we go until next time uh, this is what's involved we'll catch you again next Monday between six and seven one more thing before I go thanks for listening David Watts on mix 93.8